invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. So we're nearing the end of Paul's letter there. If uh, you didn't bring a Bible and you'd like to follow along on uh, one of the church Bibles, you can find our passage on page 949. We'll be uh, looking at what it says. You can also find the text printed on pages 9 and 10 in your order of service. When you think of what God has done for you, how do you describe it? How would you say it in a word or in a phrase, all that God has done for us in Christ? Uh, There are a lot of terms that are accurate and appropriate. We could say that God has forgiven me, God has justified me, he's cleansed me, he's changed me, he's loved me, he's united me to Christ. But Paul reminds us in our passage this morning that a very important way of thinking about what God has done is the phrase, he has welcomed me in Christ. God has welcomed you in Christ. Paul has uh, told an amazing story in the book of Romans, of, and he's been telling about what God has done in the gospel He's been talking about the good news of God's grace that have come to sinners of all types as we all find ourselves falling short of the glory of God. And as we moved into chapter 12, he shifts into speaking primarily about how God's grace received in the gospel of Jesus Christ, how it changes us from the inside out, how it makes us people who love good and hate evil and show love to others. And in the last few weeks, what we've seen is he spends an extended time near the end of his letter, chapters 14 and 15, talking about how the believers at Rome are dealing with their differences. And really, in many ways, this is why Paul has been writing the letter to the church at Rome, to help them see the implications of what the good news of God's grace does for their relationships with one another. And he wants them to see, in particular, how that shapes how they relate to each other amidst their differences, when they think differently about issues of living the Christian life. And you know, if you think of the church at Rome, I'm not sure how you picture it, um, and, but if, if we think about it, we think of these various house churches probably gathering throughout the city and people coming together from completely different backgrounds people from all different parts of the world who've been brought together into the capital city of Rome. And not only do you have people from all over, but then you also have this distinction of Jews and Gentiles. And it's hard to overestimate the fundamental differences between these two types of people. I mean, they're coming from such completely different cultures, some growing up according to the Old Testament law and with the God of Israel as their God, and then others coming from pagan cities all throughout the empire of Rome, worshiping other gods. There's an imperial cult, all kinds of things going on. And yet they're coming together in one church as the people of God united by the Messiah's work. And so Paul wants them to understand how even though they have different convictions about what it looks like to live the Christian life, they can do so in a way that brings glory to God. 
But in order to do so, in order to navigate those differences, Paul says you have to grasp this key point. God has welcomed you. And that's what we're going to see this morning. And so our passage this morning is Romans 15. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 13. Let me read it, and then we will uh, consider it together this morning. Hear God's word. We who are strong have an obligation to bear, bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So far the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask his help as we hear it preached this morning. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to see the wonder of your welcome in Christ. We pray that you would meet us in our need, in our doubts, in our struggles, that we would see the wonderful love of our Lord Jesus and the welcome that he brings, that you would encourage us and strengthen us, and most of all, that you would help us to, with one voice, bring glory and praise to you, especially in how we treat one another. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we'll take a look at this passage under three points. Um, the first is remember Jesus' mission. The second is remember Jesus' way. And then third, we'll consider remember God's welcome. So three things to remember, I guess. Uh, Jesus' mission, Jesus' way, and God's welcome. So let's first of all begin by remembering Jesus' mission. The center of this passage is really found there in verse 7. And in many ways, this is the high point of the book of Romans. It has really all been building to this sentence here. It says there in verse 7, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That verse there brings to a conclusion what Paul has been saying since chapter 14 about how there to handle their differences. And then as he goes on in verses 8 through 13, the rest of the section, he argues that this welcome of God in Christ is really the Bible's main storyline. 
And so what Paul wants us to see, first of all, is that Jesus' mission was a welcoming mission. Jesus' mission was a welcoming mission. Notice what he says in verses 8 and 9. Um, he really reminds them of what he argued extensively in chapters 9 through 11. He's, he's pulling together some major themes of what he's been unpacking. But he, he says this in summary form in verses 8 and 9. Christ became a servant to the circumcised or to the Jewish people to show God's truthfulness, to show that God had not lied in his promises. And in order to confirm or in order to fulfill the promises given to the patriarchs. And so right there, he's just summarizing the fact that everything that God promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob in the Old Testament was fulfilled through the coming of Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. And so that's one aspect of why Jesus came. But notice as he goes on in verse 9, he continues with why Jesus came. He says, And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. This is what Paul, again, showed extensively in chapters 9 through 11. Gentiles coming to faith in one and the same Messiah was not an afterthought. It was always God's plan that his promise to Abraham to give him descendants that were as numerous as the stars in the heaven and as numerous as the sand on the seashore was going to happen by making Gentiles a part of Abraham's family through faith in Christ. And so why does Paul say that? We, we may say, yeah, we, we read chapters 9 through 11. We know, we know, we know. But Paul is saying it because of this. He's saying this Jew-Gentile problem that you have right now, these disagreements that you are encountering with one another, it's not a problem, it's part of the plan. And to prove this, what Paul does is he, he really kind of says, let's watch the Messiah's movie is what he does in many ways. Um, he proves his point with four scripture citations from the Old Testament. Now, this isn't a style that we're usually used to reading. Um, it, it's, it's very different from how we tend to make our points. But I, I think, even, even though we're not used to it, this is really a mic drop moment for Paul. I mean, he is rattling these things off, drop the mic, sit down, there you go. Um, and you can kind of tell just by how much space it takes up in our Bibles, right? With those citations, we're, we're busting them out so you see that each one is actually a really big deal. And, the, and what he does is, I think it's most helpful to think of it this way. Paul it is like putting together clips from the movie of the Old Testament when he pulls out these quotations. And it's like he's woven together a montage or a trailer to prove his point. And the reason that this imagery is so powerful is because the storyline of the Old Testament is a mystery in many ways. As the Old Testament unfolds, we know that what happens is it's being told in type and shadow, and it doesn't make complete sense until the Messiah is revealed, until we see the work of Christ. And then you, it's like you go watch the movie over or you read the story again and you say, now I see what was going on all along. And so Paul is saying, now, since you know the ending that Messiah comes, 
let's go back and look at what was happening that you may have missed. And he cites every part of the Old Testament. He cites the law, the prophets, the writings. And he uses these quotes to call to mind scenes from the Bible's story. And he's doing so to show us that welcome was Messiah's mission. Now, I'm going to summarize these these citations briefly. I've been battling all week with just not geeking out too much and how how does that work out on a Sunday morning. Um, And so you're just going to have to trust me as I say these things. But if you'd like to dig in further, I wrote a paper on this back in seminary of how he's using all these passages. Um, And so I'm just giving you the cliff notes so you can see the beauty of of what he's doing. But I want to briefly cover these quotes so you can see this montage that he's putting together. The first citation he gives is from Psalm 1849. And the scene that it calls to mind is this. These words are on the lips of the Messiah singing praises to God. But then you go back and you look and what's happening? Wait, Gentiles are there too. He's praising God among the Gentiles. That's really interesting. Messiah praising along with Gentiles. The second quote is from Deuteronomy 32, 43. This is what's known as Moses' song. And it's kind of a strange song. I haven't heard anything like it on the radio, if I even listen to the radio, on my computer, I guess. haven't heard anything like it. It foretells what's going to happen to Israel as they're about to go into the promised land. And it foretells that they will uh, leave the Lord. They will fail miserably and they will be sent into exile. But then the song gives hope for God's people that on the other side of the judgment of exile, God would restore them, right? And so we know that from Israel's storyline. But again, who's there in the restoration of Israel. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Israel's restoration would include the Gentiles celebrating because they are experiencing it as well. Then he goes on in the third citation, and that may sound familiar from our call to worship this morning. It's from Psalm 117, the the shortest psalm in the Psalter. And it explicitly calls the Gentiles to praise God. Now we hear this all throughout the Psalms, right? A calling of all people to come and praise God. But what's interesting about this psalm in particular is the call for the nations to praise God is not just in some general way because he's creator. Verse 2 of Psalm 117 says that we're praising him for his steadfast super glue love. That it's not just for Israel, that covenant faithfulness and love. It's the Gentiles being called to praise God for that same saving love. The Gentiles are praising God for the same salvation that he's bringing to the Jewish people. And then, to cap it all off, Paul goes to the Romans of the Old Testament, Isaiah. And he closes with Isaiah 11, which again is talking about Israel's one day restoration of God making all things right on the other side of exile. And in that section, he foretells that the root of Jesse, another way of speaking about the Messiah, the root of Jesse will come. And it mentions that he will 
arise to rule the Gentiles. And that language there is capturing a a picture of this, the Messiah being raised up like a banner that all the peoples will flock to him for his safety, protection, and rule as he makes all things right. And notice who's coming. The Gentiles come running to him because he is the hope not only of Israel, but he's the hope of the nations. He's the hope of the Gentiles. And so in this glorious scene, Messiah is the promised hope who will make all things right. And Paul is pointing out that all along, you may have missed it in those snapshots as you read your Bible the first time, but all along, the plan has been that Jews and Gentiles would praise God together. And so as the the trailer then fades to black, Paul says, see, this thing that you are experiencing, very different people from all over the world coming together through the same hope of the Messiah. It's not an accident. The scriptures have foretold that this has been God's plan all along. And so what Paul wants them to do then is to see their present disagreements through this greater story. You see, both sides in these disagreements had forgotten what this movie's all about. And instead, they started to see themselves as the center of what God was doing. And they forgot about the others he was also welcoming. The Jewish believers were tempted to think, hey, Jesus is our Messiah. He was one of us. You all are outsiders who have been brought in, and how dare you think you can tell us about what it means to live a life that's pleasing to God. We know the Torah, we know the way, and not eating meat, we know, is pleasing to God. They forgot that God's plan had always been to include these outsiders as Abraham's children. And they forgot this, that God's plan of bringing these people together, bringing Gentiles in, wasn't to make them all adhere to Jewish customs, but to bring them together in their differences under one Messiah. And the Gentile believers, so so you've got the struggle for the Jewish believers. They're kind of thinking, hey, read the Old Testament. We're the center of the story. Then you have Gentile believers, and what are they tempted to think? The Gentile believers at that time were coming to faith in droves, and they were tempted to look down on the Jewish believers, weren't they? You people really blew it. You all had your time. I read the Old Testament. And in fact, you're still not getting it you still don't understand that because Jesus has come, we can eat meat. Come on, get with the program. No wonder the rest of the world doesn't like you very much. No wonder you were driven out of Rome. Come, be like us, right? And they were forgetting that the story of salvation was for the Jew first. That God chose the Jewish people out for himself as his treasured possession, and then through him he would bring forth the Messiah for the world so that he could bring them all together, that with one voice they could do what we were made to do, glorify God forever. God's plan all along had been 
that through one Messiah, he would bring them together, even in their differences. You know, it's really easy to lose sight of the story. It's easy to make our story, the things that are important to us, to our lives, to our cultural expressions of Christianity, it's easy to make them the center of God's story. We may look at the customs we have, the ways we do things, whether that's individually or even as our own local church. Our views of the Christian life, our opinions about what a Christian should and shouldn't do, and we start to think that these are the things that are most important. It's really humbling in a very good way to realize that God's plan all along has always been to save people who are very different from us. And he's done so not to make them like us. He's done so to make us all like Jesus. Do you see the difference that's there if you keep the storyline of Scripture? And so Paul is calling us to remember Jesus' mission as we think about how we treat one another in the church. His mission to bring very different people together in hope of what the Messiah would do. But what difference does this make? What are we supposed to do as we kind of think through things according to this storyline? Well, that brings us to our second point. Paul also wants us to remember Jesus' way. He wants us to remember Jesus' way. Paul really wants them to see their opportunity to participate in this story right now. Um, Right before verse 7, Paul gives this summary prayer of what he's wanting for the Roman Christians. Let me read it in verses 5 and 6 and hear his heartbeat there. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying that foretold vision of the storyline of Scripture of Messiah there as the choir director leading the praises of God's people, both Jews and Gentiles brought together, that's not something for just the end of time. It's something we can experience even now by how we treat one another in the church. And how do we do that? Well, he says we do that by burden-bearing and neighbor-pleasing, by burden-bearing and neighbor-pleasing. And he shows this in verses 1 through 3. This is resuming what we've been talking about the last few weeks, but he says in verse 1, we who are strong, those who knew that in their Christian liberty it was okay to eat meat, and God was okay with that, we who are strong have an obligation or a debt to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. How are the strong supposed to deal with the failings or the weaknesses of the weak? 
Well, what are these weaknesses? Let's just understand that for a moment. Here, the weaknesses, the failings of the weak, is their limited capacity to believe that it's right before God for them to now eat meat because of the work of Jesus. For them, even though they knew from what Paul and the other apostles had said, that the Mosaic dietary restrictions no longer applied and they were free to eat meat, they had a limited capacity to believe that that was right to do in their own heart. And so Paul says that rather than condemning them for their weakness, they should bear their weakness. This doesn't mean that the strong are to adopt the views of the weak and say, yeah, I guess they're actually right. No, they, they can know what Paul's argued elsewhere, that all foods are clean. Jesus has declared that. They can know and believe they're free and they can practice that amongst themselves. But what he's calling them to do is to bear with their weakness. It means to sympathetically enter into the way the weak see things and rather than condemning and judging and pressuring them to focus on how they can please them and build them up. The Bible forbids a type of people-pleasing, right? There's a sinful type of people-pleasing, and I battle it, and many of you have said you do as well. But that's when we do things because of what others think above what God thinks is right. And so there's a sinful way of people-pleasing. But the Bible also encourages us all throughout Scripture in right people-pleasing. The Bible calls us to be people-pleasers. And and what that means is thinking of what would be good for another and what would build the other person up. And here, the strong aren't to please themselves by insisting on eating meat around the weak. But instead, they lay aside the exercise of that freedom and they do what pleases the other. They don't eat the meat. And in bearing their weakness... And pleasing them, it doesn't tear down the weak. It instead is good for them and it builds them up, even if their conscience never changes about the issue. And Paul says, this burden-bearing and neighbor-pleasing, it's Jesus' way. This is the way our Messiah has done things. Paul cites Psalm 69 here to show... That Jesus' way, when we were weak and struggling, was not to please himself. But what did he do? Instead, he willingly chose to bear something, to take something upon himself that was far more than just scruples about eating meat or not. But instead, he bore the reproaches, the insults that people had against God. He actually bore the insults and reproaches that we, when we were enemies of God, were throwing up to the heavens by what we said and what we did. You see, Paul wants us to see here not only Jesus' mission of bringing people together, but he wants us to see Jesus' way of bringing people together. And so he cites Psalm 69, so we see that Jesus bore and and, um, didn't please himself, But in all of this, he's also picking up on the language of Isaiah 53, and that's part of why we heard that read in our scripture reading. 
when he says that the strong are to bear with the failings of the weak, that's not an accident that he uses that language. Because when Matthew cites Isaiah 53, he uses that exact same word when he says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And there's another tie-in to Isaiah 53 that keeps us going in this direction. When Paul later cites Isaiah 11.10, and he says that the root of Jesse is going to come and be the hope for the Gentiles, it carries our minds ahead to how the root of Jesse would actually do that. The root of Jesse would come as the root out of dry ground. And the way that the root of Jesse would be raised up as the hope for Jews and Gentiles was by coming as the suffering servant. And so what Paul wants us to see is this. The way that Jesus dealt with us in our weakness and in our sin was not by pleasing himself, but instead by bearing our burdens. And he says the way we deal with our brothers and sisters is the same way. We seek not to please ourselves, and we seek to bear their burdens. I mentioned last week that I I think this is kind of like a master class in Christian living, just pouring over these chapters. Paul spends so much attention to, to getting us to think this way, but I am amazed how much it pushes against every impulse I have of how we think we should treat one another in the church. How do you think you should deal with Christians who think differently about the Christian life than you? Now, let me give a caveat here. I am not talking about how should we deal with those who are in unrepentant sin. That's another category. It's still in love, but wisdom takes it in different directions. But the question, how do we deal with those who have differences as they think about the Christian life? Are we to berate them? Are we to pressure them? Are are we to make snarky comments that try and encourage them to get with the program? Are we to just avoid them? Hope we don't see them on a Sunday? What Paul holds forth is this, that we would say, I see what you are dealing with, and I don't want to add to your burden here, Let me lighten your burden a little bit with love. Let's set this aside because as I'm with you, I want to focus on your good and I want to focus on what will build you up as I see the dignity you have as an image bearer and I see by the Spirit's work the wonder that God is working now in your life even though we see these other things differently. See, Jesus' mission was to bring us together to glorify God. And Jesus' way of doing this is not pleasing ourselves, but bearing each other's burdens in love. And that that really brings us to our third point. Because while Paul in chapter 14, and then as he's in 1 through 6 of chapter 15, his focus is on our differences and the way that God's welcome shapes how we treat each other in differences. 
as Paul moves into verse 7 and then unpacks it with that movie of those citations, what Paul is arguing is that this way of welcome is actually the posture of our entire life as Christians. And so point three is remember God's welcome. Remember God's welcome. When Paul calls us to welcome one another, as Christ has welcomed us for the glory of God, and as Paul reminded the Romans in chapter 14, verse 3, that God has welcomed their brothers who view things differently, Paul is saying that welcome is a summary for the entire story of what God has done for us in Christ. The Bible really is a story about welcome. It begins with God creating a world and then creating image bearers. And what did he do? He welcomed them in to his fellowship and presence in the Garden of Eden. Welcomed them into life with him. But then that welcome was broken because of sin. And what did Adam and Eve find themselves doing? They were now afraid of God. They were hiding from God. They were exiled from the garden. They became strangers to the presence and welcome of God. But God was determined to not let that be the end of the story. And the central promise of God that pulses throughout the scripture, I will be your God and you will be my people. It is a promise of restored welcome, of belonging again in the presence of God with the people of God. And what we have to see in this storyline is that God's welcome is about far more than just allowing or tolerating us. It's taking those who were once enemies and strangers who were far off and distant and outside and other. And God through Christ saying, you belong, son, daughter. You are loved and you are now welcomed because of what Jesus has done. Do you know the welcome of God? I want to circle back to where I began. When you think of what God has done for you, does the word welcome rush into your mind? Believer, this morning, what God wants you to know is that what Jesus did was not just make you acceptable or tolerable, but he, through his life, death, and resurrection, has brought you into the welcome of God. If today you don't know what God thinks of you, if you're not sure about Jesus or you're not sure about being a Christian or what all that means, then hear this amazing invitation that by faith in Jesus, you too, just like all of us who are trusting in Christ, you too can experience the welcome of God. And so the first question this section has us think about is, do we know and believe the welcome of God? But I want us to consider a second question as we close, and I just want us to unpack it together for a few moments. Do you show the welcome of God?
Our world is filled with people who are estranged from God and estranged from one another. And the welcome of God is what they really need. And it's not just out there that people feel like strangers, but it's also in here. One of my uh, former professors at Moody, um, he wrote a book titled A Stranger in the House of God. And that book wasn't just about his experience as an unbeliever coming to church and then coming to faith. It was his experience throughout his life as one who was part of a church, as one who pastored a church, as one who found himself then back in the pews of a church. And he says the way he would describe the feeling of that entire experience with his struggles and his doubts and his suffering was that he often felt like a stranger in the house of God. The longer that I'm a Christian, the longer that I'm a pastor, the more I'm convinced that we all still feel like strangers in many ways. Every week, we gather together And this room is filled with people who are underneath it all asking the question, if you really knew me, would you accept me? If you really knew me, would I belong? There can be all kinds of reasons for wondering this. It can be because of our stories. It can be because of our past, the things that we've done maybe the things that have been done to us and the shame that we bear. It can be because of our sins, things we struggle with, and we think no matter how much we hear it from the pulpit that we're all struggling with these things, we think we're the only ones. It can be because of different views we have. It could be about the Christian life. It could be about theology. It can be well within the realm of orthodoxy, but we think if people knew what I really believed, would they even think I'm a Christian? It can be because of our cultural background, maybe having a different heart language or an accent or our ethnicity or something about us that just makes us feel like we're not like everyone else. And suffering and affliction also makes us feel like strangers. Chronic pain, mental illness, can lead to this feeling of coming to church and thinking that everyone is going about their normal lives, but the only friend that you have is darkness. In doing some research for Discipleship Hour when we talked about um, dementia and aging minds, I came across a lady's description of her husband's dementia as a journey into strangerhood, and it opened my eyes to the ways that suffering makes us feel disconnected, and I just want to share a little bit with you. As her husband goes further and further into his dementia, she finds herself as more and more of a stranger to him, and he feels like more and more of a stranger to her. And we might know and understand that idea, but then there's also a corporate dynamic to it as She's finding that she's now a stranger to the couple world that she once was a part of, as friends no longer want to get together with them because of the way he is now. And the invites over to their house keep getting turned down for all kinds of lame excuses. 
And so she finds herself a stranger to the world of belonging that she once was, but then she also says, but I don't belong in the world of singles in the church because I'm married, and I don't belong in the world of widows in the church because my husband is still alive. You see, when we come through these doors, part of what we realize is that life in this world and life even in the church has a way of making us feel like strangers. But Jesus reminds us that we can bring his welcome to those who feel like strangers. Jesus knew what it was like to be a stranger in the world. He came and what does John say? His own didn't receive him. His own didn't welcome him. And in fact, he was rejected by the people closest to him. And yet, even as a stranger, his life was one of extending God's welcome to others. And do you remember what the Pharisees were so upset about? He even welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus extended a welcome to those who felt like strangers to the things of God. And Jesus says that we as fellow strangers in this world can share in his welcoming work. He says in Matthew 25 of his sheep, I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. That, brothers and sisters, is our posture toward the lost, but that, brothers and sisters, is our posture toward one another. God wants you to show others his welcome to say through your words and your presence and your other-pleasing love that you belong because God has welcomed us in Christ. I don't have anything more in my notes, but it just feels like uh, interesting. What a vision for the church, isn't it? And there's one other thing I just should say, I think. All throughout this section, it talks about hope. Hope, hope, hope. And God strengthening us that we can abound in hope. You know why I think that's so needed? Because in the midst of all our strangerness, in the midst of all our differences, it can really sap us of hope. (laughs) But fixing our eyes on Messiah's mission in his way says, as we follow Jesus and extending this welcome, we can know and trust that one day he will bring us all together, that with one voice we glorify God forever. And that is our hope, even as we walk it out imperfectly in this life. Let me pray and ask for God's help. Our Father in heaven, we're humbled by your welcome. We confess that we lose sight of your story. We make ourselves the center. We look down on others. We think about ourselves. We please ourselves. We tear others down. We put burdens on people rather than carrying them. And so we confess that. And yet, in the Lord's Supper, you remind us that every one of those sins, past, present, and future, has been forgiven by the work of Christ because you have welcomed us through him. Will you humble us with your welcome this morning? 
will you change us into a people who by the way we are with others shows the welcome of our Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.